Okay, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we have been in the book of Acts, uh, and this is actually going to be our last sermon in the book of Acts as we are moving forward. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Paul's journey, and we were looking at the methods he used as he was speaking to both the Greeks and to the Jews. He, he changed his method and his approach when he was talking to different crowds about the gospel. Now, we looked at our relationships and that how we can use the relationships we personally have to point others to Jesus Christ. Now, God has left us each here for a purpose, and that is to point others to him. And this is why it's so important to live a life that models the character and his standards that he has set for us. Now, to show the world that we are different, and not only in what we do, but also in what we say. And that's part of the reason why we are memorizing the verse that we are memorizing. Here we go. So the, the verse that we are memorizing, we're going to say the white together as we're slowly adding this together. Uh, here in just in a week or so, we're actually going to add the whole thing, but we're just still reading the right. It says this together. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. God's presence in our lives teaches us not only to say no to the things that we shouldn't be doing, but it helps us to be no longer distracted by the world, to help us to focus, to have a place to put our eyes into our efforts. Now, this helps us by living controlled, as the, the verse says, uh, eventually, as we're going to be learning, uh, living controlled, self-right and godly lives in this present age. That's where the verse goes to. Today, we are going to be finishing our time in the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at chapters 27 and 28. You can actually turn to Acts chapter 27, and if you have your Bible with you, if you don't, uh, we do have some Bibles underneath the chairs, uh, and if you have a spare or you need one, just uh, wave someone down, we will uh, get you one. Now, have you ever had disaster strike your life? One day, you're trying to do the best that you can, you're, you're living the most godly life that you know how, uh, and all of a sudden, you, you lose your job, maybe the car breaks down, maybe it's worse and it's personal, something actually physically happened to you. We each have disaster strike us at one point or another in our life, something unexpected that God allows into our lives. Whatever it is, as your life is turned upside down, God starts working through our circumstances. He allows these in on purpose. Now, just a few weeks ago, we talked about our reactions and how our reactions define us because it's our reaction that shows people who our true character is. Our true character comes out when we react because we can't control it as well. It just happens. Did you know that God will often allow hard times to come into your life to test your character? We see this in biblical people throughout the Old Testament, and even uh, the author James later in the New Testament says this in James chapter 1. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. This is James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Now, he was quick later to remind his readers in the following verses that God allows times to come in to shape us, but God does not tempt us to sin. And there's a clear difference of what God allows and what God does not do. And he wanted to make sure that his readers knew that God is not tempting them to sin. He's allowing hard times to come in to shape and mold their character. We each at one point or another will go through what the Bible calls a trial. It says trial throughout the Bible. And at these points, God isn't only just working on us, but also those around us, because they get to see what we're going through, and they see what our reactions are. So today's sermon is going to be called Storm, Shipwreck, and Snake. Storm, Shipwreck, and a Snake. Uh, so 
We're going to be looking at three areas today in Acts chapter 27 and 28. Our main three points are going to be this. Today we're going to look at encountering the unexpected, as we're going to be walking through uh, what the Apostle Paul went through. Uh, then disaster after disaster, once one disaster's over, uh, yet another one comes up. And then our God-given audience, our God-given audience. We'll go through each one of these. Now, the overview between the last time we spoke was 10 chapters ago, so that was uh, Acts chapter 17, now we're in 27. What happened between now and then, as you might remember from two sermons, uh, two weeks ago, one sermon ago, uh, is that Paul was preaching and the religious were becoming very annoyed with him and they actually started following him and pushing him out of these different cities. So at one point he ends up leaving uh, the city that he had thought he had found a place in and then they found him again, and then they pushed him out one more time. And so he ends up going all the way to another re uh, region called Ephesus. And you've probably heard of the book of the Ephesians uh, in the Bible. And he's in this area, and he's starting to preach the gospel. And God starts changing hearts. Now, there's a problem here that you'll find as you're reading through the scriptures, is that there are these people that have an income there that is based in making idols. The silversmiths is what they're called. They, they use silver to form idols, and they sell it to the people in their worship practices. The problem is, if people start worshiping the one true God, we don't worship idols. So they see that their, their source of income is going to fade away very quickly. So they get angry at Paul, they start a riot, and then Paul ends up uh, getting kicked out of there as well. Now, this time he decides it's, for, it's time for him to go back to Jerusalem, as Paul is going back to Jerusalem. So I'm going to put it on a map here. Uh, now, this map is a little bit on the small side, but if you actually look, you can actually see Jerusalem all the way down there in the bottom right. And so what happens is even though he's warned that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will be arrested, Paul decides to still go and make the trip back to Jerusalem. So he goes there and he gets arrested. And since he's a Roman citizen, he can actually appeal to have his case brought before the guy that's completely in charge of Rome, which is Caesar. He has that right. Now, they're told that it's going to take him a while, and he'll have to go through other people on his way, but he keeps saying, I want to appeal to Caesar. So what ends up happening, and what we're going to be talking about, is this journey that follows a green line that might be a little bit small, but he goes all the way up, and you'll notice that he goes all the way up to the capital of Rome in Italy. So that's where he's going to be headed today, and that's actually where we're going to pick up our story, is him in the middle of his travels. So... Uh, we're going to read Acts chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. If you've got your place, I'm going to be reading out of the New King James. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners, one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering the ship of the Amagermatum, we've set to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. So the thing that I've always appreciated about the Bible is that it has this huge amount of information that is all based on historical facts. Uh, archaeology backs up the Bible time and time again, and the Bible backs up archaeology. In fact, actually many people who are in the profession of being archaeologists have used the Bible to actually help them in their research and digging up the past. That's how reliable the Bible is. Now, What's interesting is you're going to find that there are these names, you're going to find these towns, you're going to find these nautical things that are happening in this story, and guess what? Every single one of them is backed up by archaeology. So you're going to find that this story is verifiable by a lot of different sources, especially people who don't believe in the Bible. 
time and time again, we're going to find that archaeology backs up these facts. Now, over the next couple of verses, Luke actually goes through and he records a lot of verifiable information. Luke is a detail guy. So when he's going down, Luke wrote Acts. He also wrote the book of Luke, and he's detail-oriented, and he tells you a whole bunch of stuff that's happening. Now, they even talk about the speed of the ship and showing you so we can actually see, okay, this was real time. Now, in their travels, the sea was becoming more and more difficult. The wind is no longer working with them is what Luke is starting to record. And they had slowed all the way down. Their travel speed came to a grinding halt, and they were starting to be faced with some different decisions. Pick it up with verse 9 and nine through 12. 9 through 12. We'll keep reading what Luke is writing. Now, when much time had been sent, spent and sailing was now dangerous because of the fast, it was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ships, but of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised us to set sail from there also, if by any means that we could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening towards the southwest and northwest, and winter there. So back in the day, traveling around the world, ship is the fastest method bar none. It's the fastest problem that you're going to find is that most people don't sail after October. Best time to sail during this time in this sea is April to October. Once you pass this time, you start getting into storms and hurricane season, essentially, just as we know happens here in the States in September. Now, it was so dangerous that only incredibly urgent um, messages were sent uh, or incredibly urgent business was attempted. Uh, most people just they wintered their ships, and then they just waited in the port until the time was over. Also during this time, uh, you're going to find that there were no passenger-dedicated ships. So today we have cruise lines where people get to go, and it just kind of transports people. Back in the day, they didn't have that luxury. You had one of two ships. You either transported cargo or you were a warship, one of the two. So what happens is you'll notice in this story, Paul and his shipmates keep hopping from ship to ship to ship, and the reason why is because these are different cargo ships that they keep jumping on. There is no cruise liner. There is no prison transport. It is a, they have to figure out how to get there, and they just keep hopping different ships to make it there. Now, Paul sees that the situation is getting worse for both himself and his shipmates, and that it would be better if they turned to port and just wintered there at the port. But unfortunately, the experienced sailors decide that they are not going to pay attention to the guy who is supposed to be imprisoned and they don't listen to his warnings or anything else that he says. So soon after this, disaster strikes because, you know, Paul normally says what is smart. So look at verses 13 and 14 with me. 13 and 14, it says this. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a temptuous headwind arose called the Eurocyclodon. Okay, so what begins with pleasant winds blowing in the right direction Okay, so they have just had this argument, should we do, should we not go? Hey, it's really great weather, let's go. So they start going because there's really great weather. But of course, what Paul was warning about and the reason why everybody else had stopped sailing weeks prior comes to head. They called the Eurocyclodon. Now, today it's called the Hurricane of the Mediterranean, also known as the Gregale. Uh, and you'll find that it actually is a very common occurrence. Uh, and people don't sail during these times because of this uh, phenomenon that still happens even to this very day. 
Now, they are about to sail this, and it's getting colder. It's later in the year, so remember that. It is getting colder. The, the, the ocean itself is not cold enough. It's now later in the year, and it's getting colder, and they're now facing this temptuous winds. At first, the, tr- the crew is going to try to head into the wind, uh, but then soon they realize it's too powerful. And they actually, instead of trying to steer into the wind, they just allow the storm to push them about. Because they reason that if the storm just pushes them about, it'll just push them out of the way, and then they'll figure out where they're at, and then just try to get back on track. They're just trying to figure out if they could bubble around the storm. Now, unfortunately, bad turns into worse. Bad turns into worse pretty quickly. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. 18 through 20. It says, And because they were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat upon us, which means a really big storm was on us, all hope that we'd be saved was finally given up. Here we're going to find that the crew was just trying to do their job. They were going about their daily lives. This was life for them. This was day in, day out. They were just, this is what they did. And you know what? God often steps into our lives when we're just trying to go about our daily life. Like when everything is just finally starting to sail smoothly, to use the term that's here. Um, when life just feels like it, it just, everything just started normalizing. Everything just started balancing out. You ever, you ever realize that when, when disaster strikes, when something unexpected happens, it's like, I thought everything was just calming down. I thought life was just getting easier, and then this happens. I just paid the car off, and then this happens. That's the way life seems to work. And without warning, all of a sudden, we start encountering the unexpected. So point one today is encountering the unexpected. God allows unexpected to enter into our lives to grow us. Now, you could be possibly doing absolutely everything right. You could be reading your devotions daily. You could be praying for your family and neighbors every single day on your knees. You could be following God's standards to a T. Whatever the case, when God feels that you are ready for a growth step, change is coming. No matter what you think, God will allow something to come in and to change and to grow you. This is where we have the opportunity to react. We are given this opportunity. Now, when the unexpected suddenly comes, we typically ask the same questions, and I'm betting that you probably ask the same questions that I do. Why God? Why me? And why now? You ever found yourself asking those three questions? Why God? Why me? Why now? Now, these each sound like great questions to ask. And in all reality, they're very common for each of us to ask. We probably have all asked these questions at one point in our lives. But unfortunately, they're actually very self-centered questions. Now, I'm going to explain this. These come from a place where you and I are looking at what is only best for us, where we are viewing only ourselves and not a larger picture of our lives. Now, there are other limitations that asking questions like these put on your life, and we're going to talk a little bit about them. Asking the why questions will always limit you and your growth. Now, limit number one, limit number one, it places the focus solely on you. Why me? Why God? Why now? All focus is directly on me and my circumstances, my wants, my desires, and nothing is put on God, nothing onto his will. It automatically puts you center stage as the most important person of the universe. Now, we as Christians know that we are not the most important person in the universe. God is. Everything revolves around him. The world does not revolve around us. So putting these questions out says, you know what, why me, God? Why why now? I am the center of the world. Remember, 
We are not. God is. And he's got a plan that's bigger than we often expect or see. So limitation number two. Limitation number two, it doesn't offer any solutions. Asking why never offers you any solutions. You're looking for solutions, but unfortunately asking why doesn't actually start directing you towards solutions. We get lost in where we went wrong, but the fact is you may have done everything perfectly right. You may have done everything perfectly right. God will still allow change to come into your life unexpectedly to allow you to grow. And you may have done everything right. And asking why does not offer solutions. And he determines something to come into your life. There's no stopping it. Your life will change. And hopefully, as you learn, for the better. Number three. It comes from a victim mentality. Unfortunately, our society, and you may have seen this across the news, is trying to put everybody into a victim mentality. The world is against me. It's not my fault. It's their fault. You ever kind of get that when watching the news? It's, it's always someone else's fault whenever the stuff is being discussed. Unfortunately, the victim mindset keeps us from taking responsibility, which is what your mom and dad wanted you to be able to do when growing up. I want you to take responsibility for that. And unfortunately, our society pushes on taking the responsibility and blaming somebody else. Asking why God automatically blames God. Why did you do this to me? That is where that question leads. It comes from a victim mentality where you're not taking any responsibility at all. And unfortunately, typically the person that we do blame is God. Because if he's in control of everything, obviously he's the one that that made this happen. He wanted this to happen. Now, number four. Typically, it can lead us towards depression. Now, if asking these questions comes from the victim mentality, follow my thought process, it can also lead us to feeling depressed. Because when we feel powerless, let's face it, we start feeling depressed. When we feel powerless, we feel depressed. We get angry. You have a hard time feeling good about yourself. But, and here's the big thing, this isn't how Paul reacts to this situation. Paul is in the middle of a horrible situation. He does not start asking, why God, why me, why now? He reacts in a completely different way. And we're here to learn how we can change our reaction because of his and what we can actually pick up on from his. So let's check out his initial response to the oncoming disaster. Let's pick it up in verse 21. We're going to read through 25. But after long abstinence from food, which means they had no food, they ran out of it, Then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only this ship. For there stood to me by this night an angel of the God whom I belong to and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as he has told me. So you're going to notice that the first words out of Paul's mouth are a reminder of his warning. I warned you guys about this. He automatically says that. But he follows them up directly with an encouragement and points everybody to God and trust in God. He automatically turns the situation towards trust in God. Things look like they can't get worse. It looks like we have impending doom upon us, but he still points it towards trust in God, even though it's a horrible situation. Paul reminds them, and he uses that situation. He knows the ship is lost. He knows the circumstances look dire. But still, even in the face of dire circumstances, he uses the situation, and he points other people purposely to trust in God. 
Now, Paul uses this and he takes what could have been very horrible news and he turns it into an opportunity. He takes what could be and should be horrible news and he turns it into an opportunity of learning and growth. He knows that God can be trusted and he wants to teach other people that they can trust God no matter what circumstances they're going to face. Now this story continues on and actually, in fact, it gets worse. At this point, they have been without food for days. That's what it said right there at the beginning of our verses and they've been tossed day and night, so much so that they haven't just unloaded the cargo, which was the whole purpose for them setting sail. Remember, this isn't a a person ship, this is a cargo ship. So they got rid of the reason they were getting paid. And they've also not only gotten rid of that, they've gotten rid of the tackle, which means they got rid of all of the iron. The anchor is gone. There is no using an anchor anymore. They got rid of everything they possibly could to lighten the load so hope that they wouldn't get capsized so they could sit up higher in the water. Soon after, they start getting closer and closer to an island. And as they notice, they start taking depth measurements, noticing that they're getting closer to the island. And they start getting this idea that hopefully they could at least run the ship aground. Because if they could run the ship aground, they wouldn't be afloat at sea. And they might even be able to possibly save the ship and then bring it out for repairs or something later. It's here. The crew actually ends up running the ship aground. And actually a uh, tempest comes and it starts destroying the ship. I'm just beating it, splintering it. And most everybody ends up hopping off after some argument, uh, which is uh, you got to jump into this story. It's a lot of fun. He ends up uh, saving everybody's life. Uh, but they end up floating on boards because that's all they got all the way to the island. So they actually make it to the island. Uh, and uh, they make it floating there. And uh, let's pick the story back up in chapter 28, verses 1 through 3. It says, now when they had escaped, they found that the island was called Malta. So now they finally made it to land. So they were, they were shipwrecked, and then they swam to shore. The natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire, and they made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But, but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat, and it fastened on to his hand. So at this point, we have disaster after disaster. He's literally just gotten his life saved. God saved his life and everybody else. Not a single life was lost, just as Paul had told the people that they could trust God. The ship is completely destroyed at this point. If you read the account, it it splinters. The waves come and it breaks this huge ship apart. And they somehow, by God's grace, make it to shore. Not only did they make it to shore, the natives showed them unusual kindness. Unusual, as in they didn't expect it. They're like, oh, I feel really bad for these guys that just washed up on shore. Here, let us help you start a fire, because apparently your matches are probably wet. Okay, so the, the natives have decided to help them out, because they can see, remember I told you earlier, this is late October? It's cold. Who here wants to go swimming in the sea in late October? I've been in August, and it's still too cold. So they are now in late October, they're in full storm season, and they have survived the disaster, and the natives are now helping them out. Everything's finally going good. And remember what I told you earlier, just as soon as everything starts going, oh, God, I just, I, I just finally got dry. And the viper jumps out and bites Paul's hand. Now, the natives of the island automatically have a reaction to what Paul has done. Uh, and they feel like that Paul, having gotten his hand bitten, is a sign from uh, the heavens that Paul must be a murderer, that something must be wrong with him. Now, the man of God, who has been telling everybody that they can trust God, has the worst thing possible happen to him. He told everybody they were going to get saved, and just to wind up in the worst circumstance with the viper, and 
Nine out of ten people die automatically from a viper bite. I mean, this is the guy who's telling everybody else to trust God, and he's the one that gets the worst. Remember that. Now, let's keep reading verses 4 to 6 and see the uh, reactions of the people. It says this. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he, is not, is, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire, and he suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up suddenly or fall down dead. But after they had looked at him for a long time, they saw no harm come to him, and they changed their minds, and they said, he's a god. So, so they go from criminal to god really quick. Um, did Paul know that he wasn't going to die from the serpent bite? Most likely he didn't. Most likely Paul did not know. But his reaction shows a lot. Because he didn't start screaming, he didn't start flailing, he just said, you know what, God's got this under control, he shakes it off and continues on, because he knows that he can't do anything else. He doesn't have a way to suck out venom, he doesn't have a way to do anything else, it's, you know what, this is my life. And sometimes God lets you get down to the point where you have to trust him and you have no other circumstance that you can actually lean on to, and this is where Paul's at, you know what, okay, that's fine, God's got this under control, I'm going to trust him. He didn't scream, he didn't flail about, he didn't start cursing God. He just keeps on going with his life. What's the most interesting part of this story, like I said, is the reaction of those people around him. Did you notice that the automatic reaction to the guy who was supposed to trust God when bad things happened, it must be that he's a murderer. They assumed that sin was in his life. Did you notice that? Their automatic reaction when something went bad in somebody else's life is they assumed that that person had sin in their life and that their circumstance was a direct result of their sin. That is where those people went. They automatically assumed that his circumstances were a cause of his situation. So here, let me ask you a question. Have you ever looked at somebody, somebody you know, somebody you've met, somebody you've been observing as you drive past their house every single day, and you ever wondered if their situation was a direct result from their sin? Have you ever thought to yourself, maybe a family member got into something bad, well, they're only there because they, you can fill in the blank, probably been there. Now, the interesting part is that while the natives had the same reaction that we do, they automatically jumped to, Paul's a sinner, and he deserved to die. I hate to tell you, we're all sinners, and God's eyes equally, and we all have the same penalty coming without trusting Jesus Christ as our Savior. But while sin has its consequences, I want you to know that not all bad situations are a direct result of our sin. Not all Bad circumstances are a direct result of your sin. Sometimes God just allows things in to grow you. So don't assume that bad things are happening because of someone's sin, like these people did. Now, Paul had a God-given audience. We each have a God-given audience. There were people watching him. So what happens when all the people around him are watching and they see how he reacts? God has put his life on display. And the next thing they know, he's not dead, so now he must be a god. Well, he was a sinner worthy of death, now all of a sudden he's god. That's kind of imbalanced, but that's the way that they approach the situation. But God always has better plans for your life than the ones that you can automatically see. Paul probably didn't want to get shipwrecked. He probably didn't want to have to swim to shore in late October in the ocean. He probably didn't want to have to go through that storm. He probably didn't want to have to get bit by a serpent. Does anybody here feel like getting bit by a venomous snake just to show other people that God can be trusted? No? We're not? No takers? 
Paul probably didn't want a single one of these things to happen, but God allowed these things in his life so that he could show his trustworthy faithfulness to other people through his servant. Now, not long after this incident in the snake, Paul and company are introduced to what the Bible says is the leading citizen of the island, uh, and they're taken into his care. Uh, God, again, uses Paul. So we're going to read the last couple of verses, and we're going to wrap this up. So let's look at 7 through 9. Uh, chapter 28, 7 through 9. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publis, who received and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publis lay sick of a fever and dysentery, and Paul went over to him, he prayed, and he laid hands on him, and he healed him. So, did you know that to this day, the island of Malta still has a strong Christian presence? If you actually look it up, they have a very strong Christian presence. They always have had a strong Christian presence. If you read their own history documents, they actually say that the strong Christian presence dates back to this event. They actually talk about this particular event. In fact, the bay that Paul and his associates landed in to this day is, guess what it's called? It's called St. Paul's Bay. So if you go to the island of Malta, you are going to find a bay where everybody assumes uh, that that is where the shipwreck happened, and that's where they came in, and they named it St. Paul's Bay. So that's one of those interesting things that God is still using today that we can look back and say, why is that called St. Paul's Bay? Well, because these people on this island of Malta remember a time through their history books when there was this guy who was a messenger of God who probably did not intend to stop at Malta, but God helped him to sidestep. You know, we all suffer, but did you know that suffering is relative? If you ask one of my kids, okay, I've got some younger kids, maybe if you ask your kid, if you ask a seven-year-old what suffering is, you know what they're probably going to say? Mom made me miss dinner last night. I mean, really, when you ask a seven-year-old what suffering is, they're going to go, ask someone who is 70 what suffering is, and they're going to tell you a completely different story. Suffering is relative, based on our experiences. And Paul went through a whole ton of suffering. He experienced a whole horrible amount of things. And you know what? He had an amazing reaction if you look at his reaction after everything that he had, he was shipwrecked more than three times. He was beaten and left for dead time and again. More than once beaten and left for dead, assumed that he was dead. He was shipwrecked, and not only was he shipwrecked, he was left adrift at sea for almost a week one time, drifting in the middle of the ocean. And this is what he has to say at the end of this entire thing when he's talking about all the stuff he's gone through. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what Paul's summary is of all the things that he has gone through, and he went through a whole ton of stuff. Paul had the right mindset. He was able to use the hard times as a stepping stone to build his faith and his testimony and show it to other people. So then how can we do the same? Instead of asking why God, why me, why now? Let's change what we ask. Instead of asking why, try asking what. What do you want to teach me through this situation? What do you want me to not do? Instead of asking why, try asking what. Or you could try asking how. How, God, do you want me to respond to this situation? How can I honor you through this? Instead of asking God why, and why is actually always an accusatory question if you ever go into uh, any uh, deeper 
uh, counseling session uh, training or if you end up going into interrogation training, why always accuse? It always blames. On the other hand, how and what are questions that help open our hearts? You can ask God a different set of questions and start leaning and relying on him. You see, it's hard for us to open our hearts in difficult situations. We don't want to rely on God. We want to rely on ourselves. But God pushes us to these situations so that we have to rely on him. When the hard times come, and I'm going to promise you that as long as you're alive on this earth, hard times will come. What is going to be your response? What are you asking God? Are you blaming him or are you trusting him? Are you blaming him or are you trusting him? The answer to these questions will change your life, and quite possibly it'll change the lives of everyone around you. Let's pray. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's Word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.